Hello everyone and welcome to Bat Chat. I'm Natasha Livingston, the podcast's editor. As you might have seen in the news, Donald Trump is preparing for his second summit with the North Korean leader Kim Jong-un. It will be held later this month with the aim of securing North Korean denuclearization. To get an insight into what we can expect from Rocket Man and Captain Chaos, I spoke to Dr. Cha, senior advisor at the Center for Strategic and International Studies and a former US government official. But first, here's some background. After World War II, the Japanese occupation of Korea ended with the Soviet Union occupying the North and America ruling the South. In 1948, the Democratic People's Republic of Korea was proclaimed in the North and Soviet troops withdrew. Two years later, South Korea declared independence from the US, but then North Korea invaded the South, which led to the bloody Korean War. North Korea then isolated itself from the outside world after the Korean War ended in 1953. The secretive totalitarian regime has appalling standards of living and a reputation for horrific human rights abuses. Despite this, international relations with the country have improved in recent years. Kim Jong-un came to power in 2011 after the death of his father and started a new wave of diplomacy. However, 2017 saw some fiery Twitter spats between the US and North Korean leaders. Trump labelled Kim Rocket Man, who in return labelled Trump mentally deranged. Since then, relations have improved markedly. Last June, Trump and Kim met in Singapore to discuss North Korean denuclearization. Trump was so excited about the summit, he created a propaganda video. Featuring President Donald Trump and Chairman Kim Jong-un in a meeting to remake history, to shine in the sun. One moment, one choice. What if? The future remains to be written. The conference generated significant coverage and optimism. And then we fell in love, okay? No, really. He wrote me beautiful letters, and they're great letters. We fell in love. But to many, Trump was the loser in Singapore. Kim promised to close a nuclear test site, but there has been no evidence of this happening. North Korea also committed to complete denuclearization, but Trump failed to get the words irreversible and verifiable on paper, which makes this statement rather worthless. By contrast, Kim Jong-un got international fame and the promise of no more war games, which are military exercises between the US and South Korea. So, with the next summit coming up later this month, what can we expect? It's time to chat to Dr. Cha. Here now with more news, debate and opinion. Before 2010, there was only one official image of Kim Jong-un in the entire world. Now, the North Korean leader has courted President Xi in Beijing, the South Korean leader Moon Jae-in and Donald Trump. What do we know about the so-called rocket man? Um, Well, like you said, we didn't really know a lot about him until quite recently. In fact, um, when his father died of a massive uh, heart attack and he took over, uh, the only picture that was available of him was one that was, wasn't even the correct picture, but one from elementary school. Um, so we didn't know a lot about him. What we're learning about him, we've largely learned since he's come to office. 
Um, initially, there were theories that he might be a great reformer, um, being a child of a new sort of next generation elite, uh, had studied outside of North Korea. Um, but that proved not to be the case for the first five years of his rule when he really closed in. He had no external meetings with other heads of state and ruthlessly carried out purges within his own um, system. A very high rate of purging in the party, in the military, uh, even in the family, having both his uncle and his half-brother executed. And then really in the last year, we've seen this coming out of Kim Jong-un. Um, as you said, meeting with world leaders and then sharing the stage with the, uh, with the president of the United States and about to share the stage again with him in Hanoi at the end of this month. So it's been quite a transformation, actually, um, from knowing very little about him to now being flooded with all these pictures and information about him. At the first summit in Singapore, Donald Trump became the first sitting U.S. president to shake the hand of a North Korean leader. Why have Trump's diplomatic efforts gone further than previous presidents? Well, it's hard to say yet whether they've gone further in the sense that um, we have actually haven't made progress on the main U.S. objective, which is denuclearization of North Korea. In that regard, um, previous presidents, in particular George W. Bush and Bill Clinton, uh, each reached agreements that made some progress in terms of stopping their programs. Uh, <clears throat> what we have seen with Donald Trump is a personal commitment and willingness to break most policy conventions when it comes to North Korea and to go out and do this first meeting with the North Korean leader last summer in Singapore before anything had been agreed to in terms of um, a diplomatic negotiation. Um, so in that sense, he has, um, uh, I mean, some people would call it courage. Other people would call it uh, really a lack of information that leads him to be so willing to to do these meetings um that um, in that in, in terms of that optic it looks like he's gone further but there's still a lot of work to do the statement that came out of singapore last summer um, was vague it was substanceless uh, when you compare it to the agreements that were reached in 2007 and the agreement reached in 1994 and certainly much less substantive than the agreement that was reached with iran the jcpoa which uh, the Trump administration pulled out of last year. You mentioned Trump's lack of diplomatic experience, and he was heavily criticized for giving too many concessions for little gain at the previous summit. Uh, and to make matters worse, the Center for Strategic and International Studies, where you are a senior advisor, discovered hidden missile bases in North Korea last year. Is Mr. Kim making a mockery of the US? Well, I think that I think I would describe it as the North Koreans have a very clear goal and they have a very clear strategy. Um, their goal, I think, is to uh, be accepted as a nuclear weapon state um, while achieving a reduction of sanctions, a peace treaty with the United States, even normalized relations with the United States. And what they're willing to give up in return is they're willing to negotiate things from their past, that is, they're willing to give up facilities or, uh, or we even weapons that they no longer need, um, and to negotiate their future, which is the promise of not doing things in the future, like transferring weapons to terrorists or promising not to stockpile thousands of nuclear weapons. But in the meantime, that strategy ensures they keep what is in the present, which is their extent 
nuclear capabilities, which are quite large. Right? Um, so I think they have a very clear strategy in that regard. And so the real question is whether the president is well prepared enough to recognize what are some of the traps um, in terms of the negotiation if that is truly what North Korea is after, if North Korea is after the things that I just described. You could see how it would be very um, uh, attractive to him to be able to walk away from a meeting with the North Korean leader and say, hey, look, I got them to, you know, I got them to, they promised not to produce any more weapons, they're not going to transfer to terrorists, and I stopped, you know, a bunch of these programs uh, from the past. <clears throat> but that may look good to him, but for somebody who has been well-informed, knows the history of this program and what North Korea is trying to do, that is getting the wool pulled over your eyes. So what it really comes down to is whether the president will be well-prepared, and of course he has a reputation for not liking to prepare for these meetings. And it's especially important in a meeting like this because all the negotiation is going to take place between the leaders. Um, there are working-level negotiations going on right now, but if it was anything like Singapore last summer, they didn't make much progress before the two leaders sat in the room together. You mentioned that Trump doesn't like to prepare. Uh, what does he need to do or would he need to do to prepare sufficiently for the next summit? So one of the things, as you mentioned before, is the, the reports that we've done here at CSIS about the 20 additional missile bases that are in North Korea that are operational missile capabilities for everything from short range to uh, medium range to intermediate range to medium range ballistic missiles. These are deployed weapon systems, not prototype uh, systems of long range ballistic missiles. So the bright shiny object is to go after the long range ICBM capabilities, uh, which again are in a developmental stage because that's what they tested in 2017 and that is what is a direct threat to US homeland security. But even if you were to accomplish that, you still have this extant capability that threatens US forces in Korea and Japan, Guam and Hawaii and maybe as far as Alaska. So being prepared enough to understand this distinction and that there is a there are layers to the North Korean threat. We haven't even talked about the biological or chemical weapons threat. There are layers to this threat that um, that all need to be addressed if 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 the president is serious about you know f a final and fully verifiable denuclearization. Why are North Korea so protective of their nuclear weapons, and does Trump have any chance of persuading them to denuclearize? Um, so there are various theories on this. I mean, one theory is that they pursue these weapons because they're a small, isolated country sitting in the middle of um, East Asia where they are surrounded by big powers, including the United States, Japan, China, Russia, as well as South Korea, which is the 12th largest economy in the world. And therefore, they need these weapons uh, as asymmetrical counterbalance to um, to all these other countries. Um, um, the other is that they are pursuing these weapons because they're willing to trade them away. That was certainly the working thesis behind the negotiations in the 1990s. Um, I think they're deeply wedded to this program. And I say this because we have done research at CSIS where we have unearthed uh, declassified CIA satellite imagery of the nuclear operations facilities that North Korea has, uh, has had for uh, really about three decades. And what we found by looking back in the archived imagery is that North Korea actually started landscaping the site for the Yongbyon nuclear complex, which is the main complex that we are most familiar with, 
they started landscaping this thing not at the end of the cold war which was you know this theory that as a small isolated country they needed these things at the end of the cold war they actually started doing this in 1963 which was one year before china detonated a nuclear device so um, this has been a national project for over half a century and so for that reason it's difficult to imagine that they'd be willing to give it up willy-nilly as you mentioned before, President Trump tweeted that the second summit with the North Korean leader will be held in the Vietnamese capital, Hanoi. What is the significance of this location? Um, so I think, you know, for I mean, for many of your listeners, this may sound a little strange, but, you know, leader summits for the United States are often uh, the tail wagging the dog. In other words, sometimes logistics uh, determines sites more than anything else. And obviously for the president of the United States, when he travels, he can't go anywhere that secret service is unfamiliar with or where communications are bad, security is not good. Um, Hanoi, Vietnam is a place that US presidents have often gone. In fact, the last three presidents have all gone there. So the Vietnamese, I think, know how to do this kind of visit and they're, and they're ready for it. And then for the North Koreans, there are not a lot of places where their leader has gone, um, and there are not a lot of places where they have the infrastructure to support a visit by the leader. Um, there was some rumor that Hawaii was under consideration. To me, that was just not possible because uh, the North Koreans would have absolutely no support there if they were to try to move their leader to Hawaii. Um, and so that would have been very difficult. But Vietnam is a place where they have an embassy, they have an infrastructure. And for this reason, the logistics on both sides uh, lines up quite well. The other thing is that, you know, Vietnam, some people talk about Vietnam as a model for North Korea to follow a politically closed system that has managed to um, uh, still take uh, advantage of the benefits of capitalism, a market economy, and things of this nature. Um, but I think that those sorts of comparisons, at least um, <clears throat> by U.S. officials, may be more muted because apparently the North Koreans have already said that they've scoffed at the uh, image of Vietnam being the choice as a way, as a model for North Korea, because they describe Vietnam as a small, underdeveloped country, while they describe North Korea as a well-developed uh, country, despite the horrible economic problems and the massive human rights abuses that take place in the country. The next summit is pinned for the 27th to the 28th of February. What do you predict will happen? Well, I think there's a lot of um, expectations that this summit will produce uh, more concrete outcomes than the Singapore summit. The Singapore summit uh, essentially laid out a, a statement of principles about where this negotiation should end up in terms of a nuclear-free Korean peninsula, uh, normalized relations between the United States and North Korea, and a peace treaty ending the Korean War. So those principles were laid out in Singapore last summer. Um, and in the seven months since, there really hasn't been much progress on any of those three tracks. So I think there's a very high expectation that this summit should produce tangible progress on one, certainly denuclearization, if not all three of those tracks. And if it doesn't produce outcomes that are tangible in that regard, I think many people will interpret the meeting as a failure. Now, I do think that they probably will make progress on some of these tracks because if they 
didn't think that they would. I, I don't think Trump would have announced his readiness to not only announce his readiness to meet, but actually to state the time and place of a meeting. Uh, but I think for many inside Washington, the question will be, you know, what sort of progress are we making? Um, 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 is this far too incremental? And most importantly, what are we giving up in return for that progress? Because the president, uh, as he did at Singapore, has this tendency to be quite impulsive. Uh, and in Singapore, he, you know, impulsively decided to suspend U.S.-South Korea military exercises um, in, uh, without informing the South Koreans or informing his own Secretary of Defense. And so I think people are worried that um, he may get something, but that he won't give too, worried that he'll give too much in return for that. Many observers say that Trump's style of diplomacy tends to follow the madman style of negotiation. Do you think that this will be effective or do you think it's creating unnecessary uncertainty? Well, it's 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 kind of an interesting observation because that's what people say North Korea does. <laughs> they try to act like they're crazy. They shake up the table as a way to sort of get you to come and... And then they say, "Look, what will you give me to make me calm down?" So um, I think it's a it's it's if that is the case, then it's two leaders that are walking into a room, both with the same strategy, um, you know. And and again, I mean, I think the main thing with summits like this is <clears throat> um, that there is there is truth to the idea that in North Korea there is only one person that makes a decision, and that's the leader of North Korea. Nobody else can make a decision in this family-run country. Um, so in that sense, I think, you know, Trump's instincts, whether they're informed or not, are right in the sense that that's the only way we're going to see if we can really make progress, is we have to talk directly to the leader. Um, on the other hand, that also means that dealing with North Korea Nobody at the working level is going to be able to make a decision uh, without the leader approving. And it, it looks like it's the same way in the United States these days under the Trump administration. So this means that everything is getting pushed up to the top, that all the decisions and negotiations have to happen between the two leaders. And that can go very well if uh, they're, they are successful in terms of the North Korean leader's commitment to give up nuclear weapons in exchange for a peace treaty and normalized relations and, uh, you know, bringing Coca-Cola and McDonald's to North Korea. Uh, or it could go really badly, um, in which case there is no there is no diplomacy left by definition if the leaders walk away and say they can't reach an agreement. Um, so that really makes this um, a high stakes negotiation high risk and potentially high reward. There's no doubt that the world will be watching when Trump and Kim come together later this month. What could the summit mean internationally for the US and North Korea? Well, I think that's right. I think the whole world will be watching this meeting. Uh, I think the two leaders um, uh, would, have it no, would like it no other way than to be the center of attention. I think both of these leaders enjoy the spotlight. They enjoy being... Uh, the center of global attention. Um, and as I said already, there's a lot at stake. I mean, this is this is what happens in this U.S.-North Korea negotiation and what happens with regard to peace and security on the Korean Peninsula will have an impact on China. It'll have an impact on 
stock markets around the world. It'll have an impact on the question of nuclear proliferation, um, not just in Asia, but potentially to the Middle East or to terrorists. Um, so there's a lot riding on this negotiation. Um, and you have two leaders who have really taken it on themselves to try to negotiate their way out of this very difficult, out of this very difficult situation. Um, it's going to be a cliffhanger episode. For Trump, everything is like a TV show. It's, it, this is going to be sort of a cliffhanger episode over two days, the 27th and 28th. And again, I don't think anybody will know what the results of these, this is until they come out after their meetings. Um, you know, I used to do these sorts of summit preparations when I worked in the U.S. government. And in general, 99% of the summit is decided in advance of the two leaders meeting. <clears throat> with additional embellishments and flourishes added by the two leaders' interaction themselves. That will not be the case in this meeting. Um, we'd be lucky to see even 50% of this scripted in advance, uh, and then the rest is up to the leaders. So it really is a, it really will be a cliffhanger. In his New Year address, Kim Jong-un said he wanted to continue denuclearization talks with Trump in 2019, but warned that he could take a new path if the US persists with sanctions against his regime. Are you worried about North Korea? Well, I mean, that is, I, I read that statement too, and that, I mean, that is sort of typical North Korean conditionality, uh, wanting to communicate to the United States and to the world that they're interested in diplomacy and negotiation with the United States, not from a position of weakness, but from a position of strength, and that there is an alternative path, a tougher path that they are unafraid to go down. Um, you know, President Trump has said the same thing. You know, uh, you know, he wants to have a good relationship with Kim, and he wants to see denuclearization, but, uh, you know, he's a, he always says, we'll see how it goes, and if we need to go in another direction, he can do that too. So. Um, I think it's sort of it's 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 very typical on both sides to try to go into this negotiating negotiations saying sort of I'm strong, I'm not weak, I'm not doing this uh, out of expediency, I'm doing this by choice, and I can take a harder path if I want. We already saw evidence of this harder path in the first 12 months of the Trump administration, um, the so-called fire and fury. And as, as, as you mentioned at the beginning of our chat, uh, rocket man names being I think I think the North Korean leader called Trump a dotard. Um, so <clears throat> there was a lot of name calling and missile tests and nuclear tests in that first year. And, uh, you know, I don't think anybody wants to go back to that. So you're less worried this year than you would have been this time last year? Yes. This time last year, I think there was a lot of concern that um, the peninsula was headed towards war. Um, and uh, at least right now, it doesn't look like that's the case. Um, President Trump, for whatever reason, seems really committed to trying to do this diplomatically. Uh, and the North Korean leader has come out of his shell. So we'll have to see whether whether this combination is going to work. Here now with more news, debate and opinion.